Part six of the Lady of the Shroud by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part six. Hubert's journal continued. April twenty third, nineteen o seven. The rain has continued for four whole days and nights, and the low-lying ground is like a quagmire in places. In the sunlight, the whole mountains glisten with running streams and falling water. I feel a strange kind of elation, but from no visible cause. Aunt Janet rather queered it by telling me, as she said good night, to be very careful of myself, as she had seen in a dream last night a figure in a shroud. I fear she was not pleased that I did not take it with all the seriousness that she did. I would not wound her for the world if I could help it, but the idea of a shroud gets too near the bone to be safe, and I had to fend her off at all hazards. So, when I doubted if the fates regarded the visionary shroud as of necessity appertaining to me, she said, in a way that was for her almost sharp, Take care, laddie. Tis ill jesting with the powers of time unknown. Perhaps it was that her talk put the subject in my mind. The woman needed no such aid. She was always there, but when I locked myself into my room that night, I half expected to find her in the room. I was not sleepy, so I took a book of Aunt Janet's and began to read. The title was On the Powers and Qualities of Disembodied Spirits. Your grammar, said I to the author, is hardly attractive, but I may learn something which might apply to her. I shall read your book. Before settling down to it, however, I thought I would have a look at the garden. Since the night of the visit, the garden seemed to have a new attractiveness for me. A night seldom passed without my having a last look at it before turning in. So I drew the great curtain and looked out. The scene was beautiful, but almost entirely desolate. All was ghastly in the raw, hard gleams of moonlight coming fitfully through the masses of flying cloud. The wind was rising, and the air was damp and cold. I looked round the room instinctively and noticed that the fire was laid ready for lighting and that there were small cut logs of wood piled beside the hearth. Ever since that night I have had a fire laid ready. I was tempted to light it, but as I never have a fire unless I sleep in the open, I hesitated to begin. I went back to the window and, opening the catch, stepped out on the terrace. As I looked down the white walk and let my eyes range over the expanse of the garden, where everything glistened as the moonlight caught the wet, I half expected to see some white figure flitting amongst the shrubs and statues. The whole scene of the former visit came back to me so vividly that I could hardly believe that any time had passed since then. It was the same scene, and again late in the evening. Life in Vissarion was primitive, and early hours prevailed though not so late as on that night. As I looked, I thought I caught a glimpse of something white, far away. It was only a ray of moonlight coming through the rugged edge of a cloud, but all the same it set me in a strange state of perturbation. Somehow I seemed to lose sight of my own identity. It was as though I was hypnotized by the situation or by memory, or perhaps by some occult force. Without thinking of what I was doing, or being conscious of any reason for it, I crossed the room and set light to the fire. Then I blew out the candle and came to the window again. 
I never thought it might be a foolish thing to do, to stand at a window with a light behind me in this country, where every man carries a gun with him always. I was in my evening clothes, too, with my breast well marked by a white shirt. I opened the window and stepped out on the terrace. There I stood for many minutes, thinking. All the time, my eyes kept ranging over the garden. Once I thought I saw a white figure moving, but it was not followed up. So, becoming conscious that it was again beginning to rain, I stepped back into the room, shut the window, and drew the curtain. Then I realized the comforting appearance of the fire, and went over and stood before it. Hark! Once more there was a gentle tapping at the window. I rushed over to it and drew the curtain. There, out on the rain-beaten terrace, stood the white-shrouded figure, more desolate appearing than ever. Ghastly pale she looked, as before, but her eyes had an eager look which was new. I took it that she was attracted by the fire, which was by now well ablaze, and was throwing up jets of flame as the dry logs crackled. The leaping flames threw fitful light across the room, and every gleam threw the white-clad figure into prominence, showing the gleam of the black eyes and fixing the stars that lay in them. Without a word, I threw open the window, and, taking the white hand extended to me, drew into the room the Lady of the Shroud. As she entered and felt the warmth of the blazing fire, a glad look spread over her face. She made a movement as if to run to it, but she drew back an instant after, looking round with instinctive caution. She closed the window and bolted it, touched the lever which spread the grill across the opening, and pulled close the curtain behind it. Then she went swiftly to the door and tried if it was locked. Satisfied as to this, she came quickly over to the fire and, kneeling before it, stretched out her numbed hands to the blaze. Almost on the instant, her wet shroud began to steam. I stood wondering. The precautions of secrecy in the midst of her suffering, for that she did suffer was only too painfully manifest, must have presupposed some danger. Then and there my mind was made up that there should no harm assail her that I by any means could fend off. Still, the present must be attended to. Pneumonia and other ills stalked behind such a chill as must infallibly come on her unless precautions were taken. I took again the dressing-gown which she had worn before and handed it to her, motioning as I did so towards the screen which had made a dressing-room for her on the former occasion. To my surprise, she hesitated. I waited. She waited, too, and then laid down the dressing-gown on the edge of the stone fender. So I spoke. Won't you change as you did before? Your, your frock can then be dried. Do. It will be so much safer for you to be dry-clad when you resume your own dress. How can I whilst you are here? Her words made me stare. So different were they from her acts of the other visit. I simply bowed. Speech on such a subject would be at least inadequate, and walked over to the window. Passing behind the curtain, I opened the window. Before stepping out onto the terrace, I looked into the room and said, Take your own time. There is no hurry. I dare say you will find there all you may want. I shall remain on the terrace until you summon me. With that, I went out on the terrace, drawing close to the glass door behind me. I stood looking out over the dreary scene for what seemed a very short time, my mind in a whirl. 
There came a rustle from within, and I saw a dark brown figure steal round the edge of the curtain. A white hand was raised and beckoned me to come in. I entered, bolting the window behind me. She had passed across the room and was again kneeling before the fire with her hands outstretched. The shroud was laid in partially open folds on one side of the hearth and was steaming heavily. I brought over some cushions and pillows and made a little pile of them beside her. Sit there, I said, and rest quietly in the heat. It may have been the effect of the glowing heat, but there was a rich color in her face as she looked at me with shining eyes. Without a word, but with a courteous little bow, she sat down at once. I put a thick rug across her shoulders and sat down myself on a stool a couple of feet away. For fully five or six minutes we sat in silence. At last, turning her head towards me, she said in a sweet, low voice, I had intended coming earlier on purpose to thank you for your very sweet and gracious courtesy to me, but circumstances were such that I could not leave my, my, she hesitated before saying, my abode. I am not free, as you and others are, to do what I will. My existence is sadly cold and stern and full of horrors that appall, but I do thank you. For myself, I am not sorry for the delay for every hour shows me more clearly how good and understanding and sympathetic you have been to me. I only hope that some day you may realize how kind you have been, and how much I appreciate it. I am only too glad to be of any service, I said, feebly I felt, as I held out my hand. She did not seem to see it. Her eyes were now on the fire, and a warm blush dyed forehead and cheek and neck. The reproof was so gentle that no one could have been offended. It was evident that she was something coy and reticent, and would not allow me to come at present more close to her, even to the touching of her hand. But that her heart was not in the denial was also evident in the glance from her glorious, dark, starry eyes. These glances, veritable lightning flashes coming through her pronounced reserve, finished entirely any wavering there might be in my own purpose. I was aware now to the full that my heart was quite subjugated. I knew that I was in love, veritably so much in love as to feel that without this woman, be she what she might, by my side, my future must be absolutely barren. It was presently apparent that she did not mean to stay as long on this occasion as on the last. When the castle clock struck midnight, she suddenly sprang to her feet with a bound, saying, I must go. There is midnight. I rose at once, the intensity of her speech having instantly obliterated the sleep which, under the influence of rest and warmth, was creeping upon me. Once more she was in a frenzy of haste, so I hurried towards the window, but as I looked back, saw her, despite her haste, still standing. I motioned towards the screen, and slipping behind the curtain, opened the window, and went out on the terrace. As I was disappearing behind the curtain, I saw her with the tail of my eye lifting the shroud, now dry from the hearth. She was out through the window in an incredibly short time, now clothed once more in that dreadful wrapping. As she sped past me, barefooted on the wet, chilly marble, which made her shudder, she whispered, Thank you again. You are good to me. You can understand. Once again I stood on the terrace saw her melt like a shadow down the steps and disappear behind the nearest shrub. Thence she flitted away from point to point with exceeding haste. 
the moonlight had now disappeared behind heavy banks of cloud, so there was little light to see by. I could just distinguish a pale gleam here and there as she wended her secret way. For a long time I stood there alone, thinking, as I watched the course she had taken, and wondering what might be her ultimate destination. As she had spoken of her abode, I knew there was some definitive objective of her flight. It was no use wondering. I was so entirely ignorant of her surroundings that I had not even a starting place for speculation. So I went in, leaving the window open. It seemed that this being so made one barrier the less between us. I gathered the cushions and rugs from before the fire, which was no longer leaping, but burning with a steady glow, and put them back in their places. Aunt Janet might come in the morning, as she had done before, and I did not wish to set her thinking. She is much too clever a person to have treading on the heels of a mystery, especially one in which my own affections are engaged. I wonder what she would have said had she seen me kiss the cushion on which my beautiful guest's head had rested. When I was in bed, and in the dark, save for the fading glow of the fire, my thoughts became fixed that whether she came from earth, or heaven, or hell, my lovely visitor was already more to me than aught else in the world. This time she had, on going, said no word of returning. I had been so much taken up with her presence, and so upset by her abrupt departure, that I had omitted to ask her. And so I am driven as before to accept the chance of her returning, a chance which I fear I am or may be unable to control. Surely enough, Aunt Janet did come in the morning, early. I was still asleep when she knocked at my door. With that purely physical subconsciousness which comes with habit, I must have realized the cause of the sound, for I woke fully conscious of the fact that Aunt Janet had knocked and was waiting to come in. I jumped from bed and back again when I had unlocked the door. When Aunt Janet came in, she noticed the cold of the room. Save us, laddie, but you'll get your death of cold in this room. Then, as she looked round and noticed the ashes of the extinct fire in the grate, hey, but you're no so daft after all. You've had the sense to light your fire. Glad I am that we had the fire laid and a wiener dry logs ready to your hand. She evidently felt the cold air coming from the window, for she went over and drew the curtain. When she saw the open window, she raised her hands in a sort of dismay, which to me, knowing how little base for concern could be within her knowledge, was comic. Hurriedly, she shut the window, and then, coming close over to my bed, said, Yon has been a fearsome nicht again, laddie, for your poor old auntie. Dreaming again, Aunt Janet? I asked, rather flippantly, as it seemed to me. She shook her head. Not so, Rupert, unless it be that the Lord gives us in dreams what we in our spiritual darkness think of visions. I roused up at this. When Aunt Janet calls me Rupert, as she always used to do in my dear mother's time, things are serious with her. As I was back in childhood now, recalled by her word, I thought the best thing I could do to cheer her would be to bring her back there too, if I could. So I patted the edge of the bed, as I used to do when I was a wee kitty, and wanted her to comfort me, and said, Sit down, Aunt Janet, and tell me. She yielded at once, and the look of the happy old days grew over her face, as though there had come a gleam of sunshine. She sat down, 
and I put out my hands as I used to do and took her hand between them. There was a tear in her eye as she raised my hand and kissed it as in old times. But for the infinite pathos of it, it would have been comic. Aunt Janet, old and gray-haired, but still retaining her girlish slimness of figure, petite, dainty as a Dresden figure, her face lined with the care of years, but softened and ennobled by the unselfishness of those years, holding up my big hand, which would outweigh her whole arm, sitting dainty as a pretty old fairy beside a recumbent giant, for my bulk never seems so great as when I am near this real little good fairy of my life. Seven feet beside four feet seven. So she began as of old, as though she were about to soothe the frightened child with a fairy tale. "'Twas a vision, I think, though a dream it may be. But whichever or whatever it was, it concerned my little boy, who has grown to be a big giant, so much that I woke all of a tremble. Laddie, dear, I thought that I saw ye being married. This gave me an opening, though a small one, for comforting her, so I took it at once. Why, dear, there isn't anything to alarm you in that, is there? It was only the other day when you spoke to me about the need of my getting married, if it was only that you might have children of your boy playing around your knees, as their father used to do when he was a helpless wee child himself. That is so, Daddy, she answered gravely, but your wedding was none so merry as I fain would see. True, you seem to lure with all your heart. Your eyes shone that bright that you might have set her afire, for all her black locks and her winsome face. But, laddie, that was not all. No, not though her black een that had the licht o' all the stars and nicht in them shone in yours as though a hair to love and passion too dwelt in them. I saw you join hands and heard a strange voice that talked stranger still, but I saw none of the your eyes and her eyes, and your hand and hers, were all I saw. For all else was dim, and the darkness was close around you, Twa. And when the venison was spoken, I knew by the voices that sang, and by the gladness of her een, as well as by the pride and glory of yours, the licht begun to glow a wee more, and I could see your bride. She was in a veil of wondrous fine lace, and there were orange flowers in her hair, though there were twigs, too, and there was a crown of flowers on head with a golden band round it. And the heathen candles that stood on the table with the book had some strange effect, for the reflex of it hung in the air on her head like the shadow of a crown. There was a gold ring on her finger and a silver one on yours. Here she paused and trembled so that Hoping to dispel her fears, I said, as like as I could to the way I used to when I was a child, Go on, Aunt Janet. She did not seem to recognize consciously the likeness between past and present, but the effect was there, for she went on more like her old self, though there was a prophetic gravity in her voice more marked than I had ever heard from her. All this I told you was well, but oh, laddie, there was a dreadful lack of living joy, such as I should expect from the woman whom my boy had chosen for his wife, and at the marriage coupling too. And no wonder when all is said, for though the marriage veil of love was fine, 
and the garland of flowers was fresh gathered, underneath them all was nay nither but a ghastly shroud. As I looked in my vision, or maybe dream, I expected to see the worms crawl around the flagstain at her feet. If t'was not death, laddie dear, that stood by ye, it was the shadow of death that made the darkness round ye, that neither the licht of candles nor the smoke of heathen incense could pierce. Oh, laddie, laddie, way is me that I hae seen sick a vision. Waking or sleeping, it matters not. I was sair distressed, so sair that I woke with a shriek on my lips and bathed in cold sweat. I would have come doon to see ye if you were heartier, no, or even to listen at your door for any sound of your being quick, but that I feared to alarm ye till morn should come. I've counted the hours and the minutes since midnight when I saw the vision, till I came hither just the now. Quite right, Aunt Janet, I said, and I thank you for your kind thought for me in the matter, now and always. Then I went on, for I wanted to take precautions against the possibility of her discovery of my secret. I could not bear to think that she might run my precious secret to earth in any well-meant piece of bungling. That would be to me disaster unbearable. She might frighten away altogether my beautiful visitor, even whose name or origin I did not know, and I might never see her again. You must never do that, Aunt Janet. You and I are too good friends to have sense of distrust or annoyance come between us, which would surely happen if I had to keep thinking that you or anyone else might be watching me. Rupert's Journal Continued April 27th, 1907 After a spell of loneliness which has seemed endless, I have something to write. When the void in my heart was becoming the receptacle for many devils of suspicion and distrust, I set myself a task which might, I thought, keep my thoughts, in part at any rate, occupied, to explore minutely the neighborhood round the castle. This might, I hoped, serve as an anodyne to my pain of loneliness, which grew more acute as the days, the hours, wore on, even if it should not ultimately afford me some clue to the whereabouts of the woman whom I had now grown to love so madly. My exploration soon took a systematic form, as I intended that it should be exhaustive. I would take every day a separate line of advance from the castle, beginning at the south and working round by the east to the north. The first day only took me to the edge of the creek, which I crossed in a boat and landed at the base of the cliff opposite. I found the cliffs alone worth a visit. Here and there were openings to caves, which I made up my mind to explore later. I managed to climb up the cliff at a spot less beetling than the rest and continued my journey. It was, though very beautiful, not a specially interesting place. I explored that spoke of the wheel of which Vissarion was the hub and got back just in time for dinner. The next day I took a course slightly more to the eastward. I had no difficulty in keeping a straight path, for once I had rode across the creek, the old church of St. Sava rose before me in stately gloom. This was the spot where many generations of the noblest line of the land of the Blue Mountains had, from time immemorial, been laid to rest, amongst them the Visarians. Again I found the opposite cliffs pierced here and there with caves, some with wide openings, 
others the openings of which were partly above and partly below water i could however find no means of climbing the cliff at this part and had to make a long detour following up the line of the creek till further on i found a piece of beach from which ascent was possible here i ascended and found that i was on a line between the castle and the southern side of the mountains i saw the church of st sava away to my right and not far from the edge of the cliff i made my way to it at once for as yet i had never been near it hitherto my excursions had been limited to the castle and its many gardens and surroundings it was of a style with which i was not familiar with four wings to the points of the compass the great doorway set in a magnificent frontage of carved stone of manifestly ancient date faced west so that when one entered he went east to my surprise for somehow i expected the contrary i found the door open not wide open but what is called a jar manifestly not locked or barred but not sufficiently open for one to look in i entered and after passing through a wide vestibule more like a section of a corridor than an ostensible entrance made my way through a spacious doorway into the body of the church the church itself was almost circular the openings of the four naves being spacious enough to give the appearance of the interior as a whole being a huge cross it was strangely dim for the window openings were small and high set and were moreover filled with green or blue glass each window having a colour to itself the glass was very old being of the thirteenth or fourteenth century such appointments as there were for it had a general air of desolation were of great beauty and richness especially so to be in a place even a church where the door lay open and no one was to be seen it was strangely silent even for an old church on a lonesome headland there reigned a dismal solemnity which seemed to chill me accustomed as i have been to strange and weird places it seemed abandoned though it had not that air of having been neglected which is so often to be noticed in old churches there was none of the everlasting accumulation of dust which prevails in places of higher cultivation and larger and more strenuous work in the church itself or its appending chambers i could find no clue or suggestion which could guide me in any way in my search for the lady of the shroud monuments there were in profusion statues tablets and all the customary memorials of the dead the families and dates represented were simply bewildering often the name of Vissarion was given and the inscription which it held i read through carefully looking to find some enlightenment of any kind but all in vain there was nothing to see in the church itself so i determined to visit the crypt i had no lantern or candle with me so had to go back to the castle to secure one it was strange coming in from the sunlight here overwhelming to one so recently accustomed to northern skies to note the slender gleam of the lantern which i carried and which i had lit inside the door at my first entry to the church my mind had been so much taken up with the strangeness of the place together with the intensity of wish for some sort of clue that i had really no opportunity of examining detail but now detail became necessary as i had to find the entrance to the crypt my puny light could not dissipate the semi-sumerian gloom of the vast edifice I had to throw the feeble gleam into one after another of the dark corners. At last, 
I found behind the great screen a narrow stone staircase which seemed to wind down into the rock. It was not in any way secret, but being in the narrow space behind the great screen was not visible except when close to it. I knew I was now close to my objective and began to descend. Accustomed though I have been to all sorts of mysteries and dangers, I felt awed and almost overwhelmed by a sense of loneliness and desolation as I descended the ancient winding steps. These were many in number, roughly hewn of old in the solid rock on which the church was built. I met a fresh surprise in finding that the door of the crypt was open. After all, this was different from the church door being open, for in many places it is a custom to allow all comers at all times to find rest and comfort in the sacred place. But I did expect that at least the final resting place of the historic dead would be held safe against casual intrusion. Even I, on a quest which was very near my heart, paused with an almost overwhelming sense of decorum before passing through that open door. The crypt was a huge place, strangely lofty for a vault. From its formation, however, I soon came to the conclusion that it was originally a natural cavern, altered to its present purpose by the hand of man. I could hear somewhere near the sound of running water, but I could not locate it. Now and again, at irregular intervals, there was a prolonged booming, which could only come from a wave breaking in a confined place. The recollection then came to me of the proximity of the church to the top of the beetling cliff, and of the half-sunk cavern entrances which pierced it. With the gleam of my lamp to guide me, I went through and round the whole place. There were many massive tombs, mostly rough-hewn from great slabs or blocks of stone. Some of them were marble, and the cutting of all was ancient. So large and heavy were some of them, that it was a wonder to me how they could ever have been brought to this place, to which the only entrance was seemingly the narrow, tortuous stairway by which I had come. At last I saw near one end of the crypt a great chain hanging. Turning the light upward, I found that it depended from a ring set over a wide opening, evidently made artificially. It must have been through this opening that the great sarcophagi had been lowered. Directly underneath the hanging chain, which did not come closer to the ground than some eight or ten feet, was a huge tomb in the shape of a rectangular coffer or sarcophagus. It was open, save for a huge sheet of thick glass which rested above it on two thick balks of dark oak, cut to exceeding smoothness, which lay across it, one at either end. On the far side from where I stood, each of these was joined to another oak plank, also cut smooth, which sloped gently to the rocky floor. Should it be necessary to open the tomb, the glass could be made to slide along the supports and descend by the sloping planks. Naturally curious to know what might be within such a strange receptacle, I raised the lantern, depressing its lens so that the light might fall within. Then I started back with a cry the lantern slipping from my nerveless hand and falling with a ringing sound on the great sheet of thick glass. Within, pillowed on soft cushions and covered with a mantle woven of white natural fleece, sprigged with tiny sprays of pine wrought in gold, lay the body of a woman, none other than my beautiful visitor. She was marble white, 
and her long black eyelashes lay on her white cheeks as though she slept. Without a word or sound, save the sounds made by my hurrying feet on the stone flooring, I fled up the steep steps and through the dim expanse of the church out into the bright sunlight. I found that I had mechanically raised the fallen lamp and had taken it with me in my flight. My feet naturally turned towards home. It was all instinctive. The new horror had, for the time at any rate, drowned my mind in its mystery, deeper than the deepest depths of thought or imagination. End of Part 6 Recording by Thomas Copeland